My name is Tony, and I was in a cult for over a decade. And my name is Lindsay, and my sister was in a cult for over a decade. And now I'm out. Lindsay and my family helped get me out, and we have created a podcast. Playing in Traffic. We interview survivors of the Wimscog. We cover topics of healing and topics of all things about cults. So tune in, like, subscribe, whatever all that means, and enjoy the process of deconstruction. Welcome to Playing in Traffic. This is our disclaimer song. This is our disclaimer song. It's our opinion. Don't sue us. Don't sue us. If you didn't want us to make a podcast about you, then you probably shouldn't have started a religion where you brainwashed people and separated them from your family, so it's kind of your fault. But don't sue us. Don't sue us. You know who you are, so don't do it. Don't sue us. Playing in traffic. Hi guys, we're here. Hi little clown. Hi little clown. I got Hi, to dress Jean. like a clown yesterday at a carnival. Like a clown, and it was the cutest thing. We should put a picture because oh it's like you were meant to be a clown. Dude, I loved it so much. I can't believe how much I loved it. I, I was a clown. Cool. You know what I realized this morning? I realized that in my twenties, I applied for a job to be a tooth fairy at public schools to go around to the schools and teach about like tooth hygiene and I would dress up like a like a fairy like the tooth fairy and a perfect job. job but I really 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 was like you guys have to bring me in for an interview because I don't know how to describe that I'm perfect for this job but yesterday I got to fulfill that tiny little dream of mine because I got to be a little clown and it was fun anyways hello everybody um we want to start by addressing something that we said in our last episode. We had a lovely listener send us an email and he pointed something out. This was a point that I didn't even really consider, so I'm glad that they reached out to us. It was cool. Yeah, um, we kept con- we kept saying conservative and Republican sort of as the same thing, and it's not the same thing. And we were doing it in the context of, it's okay to be conservative if that's your thing. We're not judging for that. But that our our listener pointed out that being a Republican is totally different than being a conservative as far as politics. Does that mean like not mixing religion with politics? So like conservative is more like a religious term. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, like we were saying it's okay to be conservative, but what we were trying to say was it's okay to be Republican. Like it's okay to be different. We were trying to say, like, if you believe in stuff that we don't believe in, that's totally okay. We're not trying to be judgmental of that. But we, I am judgmental if you are a conservative political person trying to make laws that represent your beliefs on your religion. religion. So, like, for people who run on, like, um, abortion laws and anti-gay laws. Well, those people also believe in the end of the world. 
those really radical Christians. They really do. They believe in the end of the world. So their beliefs are highly motivated by that and other things. And we just want to keep them separated, right? We got to keep them separated. So anyway, we think it's cool, whether you're Democrat, Republican, whatever you are, just don't be an a-hole and just don't force your religion on us, right? So I just wanted to like clarify that we're acknowledging that we did that in the last episode and we didn't mean to. Tony and I come from a family that um, Republican and conservatism kind of do go hand in hand. And so I think we just got kind of lazy with the way that we say it. Use it like we have used it hand in hand. So I felt like I kind of learned something too. So that was interesting. And I thought about it differently too. Yeah. Thank so you. That was cool. Kurt Miller, and you guys was- have any other, um, any cool comments? Let us know. Yeah. Anywho, let's go. have an episode, girl. Let's have an episode. I hope y'all enjoy this interview with Sharon. Woo, woo, woo. All right, you guys, today we have another guest, a new friend of ours. Her name is Sharon, and Sharon was baptized in 2010 in Salt Lake City, and she was in the World Mission Society Church of God for a really long time until 2022, and it sounds like she was also moved a lot among different house churches, so I'm excited to hear that story, and um Today, she lives in Seattle. So hi, hi, Sharon. Thank you for joining us. Hi. Yes. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited. I am a big fan of the podcast. It's helped me a lot in my healing process, and I think it's a great platform. So I feel very honored to be a guest on your show, and I'm excited to share my story. Thank you so happy I'm so happy like that just makes me so happy that it's like having having an effect that we wanted you know yes yes no definitely and I have shared the podcast with others who I have had the honor of helping them as they're coming out and they've reached out and asked why I no longer attend and so I've given out the podcast to numerous people. And I think that you guys are doing a great job. So did you have, um, were any of the interviews specifically, like, did you hear, do you have a, like one that like really hit you? Um, I think, yeah. So I think as far as relatable, I related most to Kelsey's interview because I think that our situation was very similar as to when we were recruited. So I was also a university student. I was around the same age as her when I was approached. And so I I related a lot to her interview specifically. And then as far as the one that I think was most shocking to me and most just like crazy and the one that I tell everyone to listen to is Raymond's. Raymond's interview is very, he has just a unique, he was in a unique position to be able to be a part of the internet mission and to be able to, I guess, really kind of see how bad the organization really is at its root. And so a lot of the things that he mentioned regarding the internet mission, I didn't know until after I heard his interview. And so that's one that I always, 
like when people ask me, is there one that you recommend listening to because they don't want to listen to all of them? I always mention listening to his um, because I think he provides a lot of good information. Um, so yeah, I think those two are probably, like I said, the one that was most shocking and then the one that I could relate to the most was Kelsey's. I was shocked too. After speaking with Raymond, I was like, what in the world was I involved with? What happened? What were they doing? I had no idea either. Yeah. It's shocking. Just how intricately they were involved in and how manipulative. I think that was the biggest thing for me was how manipulative their tactics were. Um, how deceitful they were, you know, right. I think that was what was most shocking to me because I think a part of us when we leave, and I mean, this is something that I've, as I've been reading about cult survivors in general, you just like being in an abusive relationship, you always, you still struggle with part of you still wants to defend the organization in a way. And, you know, I mean, I think it's definitely healthy to look at the positive and the negative, but I think sometimes we tend to over defend, you know, like, well, it wasn't that bad. Or, I mean, I guess they weren't that awful, but then I think after listening to Raymond's interview, I was like, okay, no, like th they were pretty bad, <laughs> you know, right. in, in, in certain aspects. And, um, and just to, just to know that, you know, he's still struggling legally and because and, and I think that just shows that he has a lot to expose and they're afraid about they're afraid of that um and so that's why they're trying to um silence him um and so you know and I, I know that um I did watch the interview that Michelle and Raymond and then the lawyer and then their lawyer at the time with um on great light studios and i remember one of the things that the lawyer mentioned was that i mean there's like a stack of documents that raymond has that they want to expose but i think that's what they're afraid of is that exposure they don't want that to get out into the public and so they're trying to silence him which is unfortunate but i i hope justice will prevail and that what needs to be exposed to the public will be exposed. What was, so when you got baptized, what was it like? And how long did it become until you became a gospel worker? Okay, yeah. So I, yes, I was baptized in 2010. Um, I was a university student at the time. And I, it was during the summer, it was in August. And I happened to be on the campus I wasn't having any classes at the time, but I happened to be on campus because I was involved in some sort of a leadership thing and we had a meeting on campus. So I was leaving that meeting and two people approached me and I could tell that they were from a religious something because you know the, of the way they were dressed and then they were holding Bibles. And it was interesting because I remember having this thought because I was very, you know, before getting involved with the Wimscog, I was, I wasn't very particularly religious. I mean, I, you know, I had gone to different churches growing up and especially the, like my senior, junior year of high school. And then also in college, I just became a lot more like 
mm, I don't know. I mean, I grew up a certain way, Christian, but do I really believe that? You know, I kind of want to expand my horizon. I want to see what else there, there is out there. So, you know, when I was at home and people from like the Jehovah's Witness or the LDS Church, which is really big in Utah, you know, this was Salt Lake City, um, would come to my door, you know, a lot of times I wouldn't open the door. But being in an open campus, there's really no door to hide, hide behind, right? So if there's people approaching you, you kind of have to, you have to have that encounter. And so I remember thinking, oh, great, you know, they're probably going to invite me to something. But they came up and they just asked me if I was religious, if I was Christian. And I told them that, you know, I didn't really belong to any specific religion. I considered myself you know, I, if I had to give myself, you know, a title, I would just say that, I don't know. My religion is, I don't know. I'm kind of leaning towards being agnostic, but I'm not really sure. And they asked me, have you ever heard of God, the mother? That's one of the really popular things, right. (laughs) That they, that they catch you with. And so that was interesting. I'm not going to lie. That was, that was really interesting because I'd never heard a Christian somebody that identified as Christian or believed in the Bible because they were holding Bibles talk about God, the mother. So I, I really, that did kind of pique my interest. Um, and so then they offered to show me a verse and they showed me Genesis chapter one, verse 26 or 27, you know, let us make man in our image. And, you know, this is talking about the male and female image of God. And so that was interesting because I'd never seen that before or looked at that verse that way. And they asked if I'd be interested in Bible study. And I wasn't really interested in Bible study because my idea of a Bible study was boring. And, you know, I'd been to quite a few and I just didn't, I wasn't interested. But for some reason, um, when they asked for my phone number, you know, they were like, well, would you be interested? And of course, I wanted to be nice. So I was like, well, maybe, you know. Um, I might, I wouldn't mind doing a Bible study, you know, at some point, but for some reason, when they asked for my number, I gave them my number, (laughs) you know, I don't know why, but I did. Um, And then I know that they left me with the Bible study card. And I remember when I got back into my car, I just kind of threw it somewhere. I didn't think much of it. Didn't really think it was going to go anywhere. Kind of forgot about the experience. And then I think the next day, or maybe two days after one of the uh, gals or the gal that had preached to me, she, uh, called and she called me and she was like, Hey, you know, um, this is so-and-so from the Bible study. Um, just wondering if you want to have a Bible study. And that kind of took me by surprise. Cause like I said, I'd forgotten about it. I wasn't really thinking anything was going to happen. Um, and so she asked if I wanted to meet up on campus and have a Bible study And it was during the summertime, you know, I didn't have any classes. I really, I wasn't really working. And so I really had no excuse. (laughs) So I was like, okay, yeah, I mean, why not type thing? Um, I thought they were students. Um, They were fairly young. And so, and they didn't identify when they first had met me that they were from any sort of church. So I just thought that they were, you know, students maybe had a Bible study club. Um, And so they wanted to meet at at the library, at the school library. And so I set up a time with them. I met with them. um, And, you know, I think they studied like Heavenly Wedding Banquet or something. But what really got me was 
if I had a question and it got to the point where I was just asking random questions. Okay. If you believe in God, then why is there pain and suffering? Or if you, you know, if God exists, why is there Satan? And I had all these questions that I'd always wondered about God in the Bible and nobody had been able to answer previously. And the, the guy that was there, you know, he was able to just go back and forth in the Bible and show me the answer. And I had never seen that before with any other church. And so that really, that really is, I think, what drew me to them because I, you know, seemingly they could answer all my questions. And that was very different. That was very different. Previously, if I had had a question, people would dodge the question or tell me to just pray about it or have faith. Um, but for the first time, they were actually showing me my answers through the Bible. And that really drew me in. And then I think, and then the rest is, you know, history. I mean, from there, I mean, I think we studied for quite a, uh, quite a while. And then um, they did invite me, they told me they were inviting me to a friend's house to have a Bible study. Later, I found out that was a house church. Um, still didn't know what their, what their name was, you know. World Mission Society Church of God found that out later, much later. Um, so of course now in hindsight, I'm like, it was very, uh, they with, withheld quite a bit of information from me. You know, they didn't identify themselves as being sent from San Diego to establish a house church in Salt Lake City, which was the reality of the situation. But, um, but yeah, I think that's kind of what drew me in and they were able to answer all my questions and it was interesting. The prophecy was interesting. We said it about six day creation, Daniel's prophecy and, um, Seemingly, they seem to make sense of science with the Bible, which was also very interesting to me. And so I ended up getting baptized, I think, a few days later. Lindsay, did you have a question? I did, but she answered it. Okay, I was going to ask you when, how long until you found out that they weren't students. And you said they. Oh, said yeah. They yeah, I think it was like, so they were there for a week or so um they were part so of like a, a short term preaching. a short term yeah it was right. i was going to say you're probably familiar with like short term missions so they were there for a short term from san diego so there wasn't officially a church in salt lake city at the time so later you know once i got baptized and all that you know i learned okay like this is an actual church they're only here temporarily they're not students they're going to go back to san diego okay you know, so i got baptized wanna... in like a bathtub okay, <laughs> so first members in Salt Lake City then? I'm sorry, say that one more time. Were you one of the first members in Salt Lake City? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We were one of the first members in Salt Lake City. Wow. Yeah, we were one of the first members. Um, that was the first ever short term there. Um, and so, yeah, so my my sister and I, we ended up, you know, later I told my, my younger sister about it. So the two of us, we ended up getting baptized and yeah, we were one of the first members in the house church in Salt Lake she, City. She's still in? My sister, yes. Yes, she's still in. She's very much involved and very active. When you were getting baptized and when it was sort of like, you weren't really sure, like, you know, what was, like, is this a church? Is it a house? You know, what's happening? Did you think any of that was a little strange or were you just, because they had all the answers, it just seemed okay? Um, I do remember that I did have feelings of being uncomfortable. So one of the first things I'll mention is I was hesitant to get baptized. 
And so I had had, I think like, I had been studying with them for like three days and these Bible studies were really long. You know, I mean, well, I was having multiple Bible studies. I mean, there were days I was there for like eight hours plus just having the, just, just taking in these Bible studies. Uh, again, I was a college student. I wasn't working at the time. And so it's not like I had anywhere else to be. And I was really interested. Um, now the person who, one of the people that had preached to me, he was the one that had what they call baptism authority. Um, and he was going to be leaving. So actually the, the family that was going to be staying in Salt Lake city, they didn't have baptism authority. He was going to be leaving. And so he made that very clear, like, Hey, I'm going to be leaving back to San Diego and like however long. So you should get baptized. Right. And I was, I was a little bit hesitant because it seemed like it was very soon to make that commitment. I mean, I viewed baptism as being kind of a, a commitment and I wasn't really ready to make that commitment yet. And I definitely, there was a lot of pressuring. Um, and I did end up getting baptized in the end, but I do remember, um, you know, I, I, I had expressed hesitation, but then it was like, well, but you never know what's going to happen tomorrow. You know how they use fear and, you know, who's to say when the next person's going to be down here to be able to baptize you, you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Don't boast about tomorrow. Um, and then at the time I remember like it was, it was, it was raining. And all of a sudden, while we're having this conversation, it thunders really, really loud. And so I remember it was just really awkward. Well, not awkward, but it was just, it kind of just caught us by surprise. And I think I made a comment, something along the lines of, well, that was weird. And then he's like, oh no, that wasn't weird. Let me tell you what that was. And then he showed me a verse in the Bible where it likens God's voice to thunder. So then of course he took that and he was like, this is God telling you that you should get baptized. And so I was like, okay, fine. I'll get baptized. Oh so, my God, they always yeah. say that. I forgot that they would say that. That is yeah. wild. And how manipulative that they use that to pressure you when you weren't totally sure, you know, and then you see that as a sign from God, you know? Right. In yeah, that yeah, moment, exactly. because you're already scared. You're already thinking, you know, maybe God put me in this moment for a reason. Wow. Yeah. So yeah. yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> so we got baptized and I remember, you know, my sister and I, we were in the bathroom, you know, in like a house and there's like a tub there and they gave us these robes and we're just kind of looking at each other. Like, what are we doing? Do we want to do this? And yeah. And my sister, she was actually 16 at the time. So they, they made her call my dad and ask permission to be baptized. And she called my dad and my dad was actually kind of hesitant about it. Um, like we're, what do you mean? You're already baptized or whatever. And he actually, <laughs> He didn't actually give permission for her to get baptized, but she was just kind of like, oh yeah, he said it was fine. And so then she got baptized. Um, back then they wouldn't do, um, now, at least when I was going, they do, you know, you have to have parental consent form signed. But back then in 2010, I mean, as long as somebody, as long as I guess you said that, it, that your parents said it was okay, it was fine. Um, and so I, but I remember, yeah, like being in the bathroom, like, I don't know. And then, um, I remember that when we were being baptized, they started singing 
all of a sudden. And that took us by surprise. Nobody warned us. So of course we just like bust out laughing, like while we're being baptized. Like it was just very much like, I don't think that we were, yeah, that there was really, I can't say there was much consent to it. Like it was, we were very pressured. We were, we were very manipulated and, and how we were old young. Were you? Yeah. How we old didn't know you? what we were your doing. Sister. I was 19 at the time. And your sister was 16. So she you was guys 16. are so yeah. young and these we people so seem like yeah. they know what they're talking about. They're in their suits and everything. Right. Exactly. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. So, um, yeah. So how long did it take for you, for you to like fully believe in father, mother, and to become a worker? Um, honestly, it didn't take long. Um, I, you know, we kept studying and we watched all the videos. We watched a lot of the videos about father and mother sacrifice that make you feel like you're the most awful person in the world. And it didn't take long for me to, because in the beginning, when I had a question, they would answer it through the Bible. And in the beginning, they were very nice. There was a lot of love bombing, right? And, um, and it was, it, you know, it felt like a community. It felt like a little community, you know, our little house church. And I, I really believed, believed it. I believed that I had found the truth. I really, really believe that father and mother were God and it did not take long for me to keep the full Sabbath, to keep all the seven feasts and three times, to keep, you know, the 5 a.m. services faithfully. And yeah, I mean, it, it like, it really didn't take long. I was one of those ones that like <laughs> instant gospel workers, so my sister and I both. So Sharon, did you quit school or did you finish? Um, so I, at the time I was on the path to become a doctor. Um, and I was never told to quit school. Um, I will, you know, one of the things that I actually meant to mention at the beginning of this is that I just want to kind of as a disclaimer, this is my experience. This is my story. I'm in no way claiming that what I'm saying is like official, you know, Wimscock doctrine or that this is how it's done in all the churches. But all I can go off of is my own experience and what I was told and what I was taught. Um, and I would never lie because that just goes against my deepest core. And that was one of the problems I actually had with Wimscog was sometimes I was put in a situation where I was told to lie and I couldn't, even though leadership expected me to. So I would never lie and say that I was directly told to quit school because that never happened. Now I know in certain cases it did happen. Like my, from what I've understood, like before my time, right? Like in Raymond's time, they were actually like directly told to quit school. I was never told to quit school. But um, I just realized that like, it was my own decision that, you know, well, if the world's gonna end any time now, like why would I waste all this time and all this money to go to medical school, right? I mean, there's no point, father's coming so soon. Um, so I, 
you know, I didn't, and then my, my father was actually terminally ill at the time. And so while I was getting involved in, in the Wimscog and becoming more active, my dad was, you know, really sick and he ended up passing away. And I think those two things, my dad passing away, and then also my involvement in the Wimscog, I decided on my own that I didn't want to do medical school anymore. Now, thankfully, I did complete my bachelor's degree over time. Um, you know, my my leader was supportive of like that, you know, like, yeah, it's not, a, I mean, might as well finish, get your bachelor's degree. Like, you know, I mean, you're almost done type thing. Um, so I, yeah, so I didn't like entirely quit school, but I did decide to quit my aspirations of becoming a doctor at the time. There was definitely good to it too. You know, I met some of the best people that I've ever met in my life in the church of God, you know, people that are just so good, you know, um, just the best people. And I mean, there was definitely good, you know, compared to other churches, there's a lot of diversity, you know, I mean, you have people from all different cultures that generally get along and you get to try all different types of food. And I mean, I learned how to put together presentations as far as how our churches were doing and all that and PowerPoints and definitely got comfortable with public speaking. And so, I mean, there was, and learn how to cook, which I probably would have never learned otherwise. <laughs> so, so there was good to it. But the reason that I'm here on this podcast is I wanna talk more about the bad. And I want to, um, I want people to be aware of some of the, some of the bad that I witnessed. Um, and particularly there's a few things that I find extremely problematic um, and concerning that I, that I wanna bring to people's attention. Tell us, girl, tell us to me. In 2012, um, how did you feel after, like when 2013 happened? So uh, I was actually never, so I was baptized in 2010. Um, but I think because we were in a house church and we were kind of isolated from like the main church. And so I was never directly told that like 2012 was going to be the end of the world. Um, however, I was, I was taught the prophecy of Jonah and I was taught through the seven feasts and three times how 2012 is prophesied about in the Bible, that that was the year that the temple was supposed to be completed. However, I was never directly told like 2012 is going to be the end of the world. I know some members were, that wasn't my experience. And so like when the world didn't end, it didn't necessarily bothered me um yeah because you yeah. weren't like, looking at a date looming over you like no yeah no I wasn't yeah there was never a date um that I was taught specifically um but there was definitely just that general sense of like fear like the world's gonna end any time you know Father's I mean, footsteps are around the corner. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, when actually I was hesitating to be baptized, there was, there was talk about North Korea, you know, back in 2010, like, well, North, you know, North Korea is getting really upset and these, and this and that, and you just never know. And so like, there was definitely fear, but, but yeah, I was never directly told that the world was going to end in 2012, but I was shown 
prophecy as to why 2012 was an important year right to them so so did you find your husband in the church did you get married in the church I did yeah yeah so so my husband and I we we did get married in the church um now this was a little bit later so I ended up moving to Montana to help preach the gospel um that was one of the places that we had done a short term because there was a family that was actually in the military that had been baptized I believe in in Italy and then they had been stationed in Montana and so at the time Salt Lake City was kind of entrusted with um kind of that teaching area. those members having Bible study or whatever. Right. And so um, we had a short term there and we baptized quite a few members and I volunteered actually. I was like, I wanna go out to Montana. I wanna help preach the gospel, you know? And so I ended up moving to Montana and I was single at the time, but later down the road, you know, they, they would always talk about, well, marriage, you know, that's a thing that you do for the gospel or whatever. And so, um, they did introduce to me the person I ended up getting married to, and, and we did date, um, but it was very quick. You know, I mean, we literally dated for like two or three months and then we got married. Um, yeah, it was, it was very quick. And I remember that we had set a date, like we wanted to get married like a few months later and, and we were told, oh no, like there's no reason to wait, just get married like next month, you know. Was he a brother that you knew? Um, so not really. So he was a brother from San Diego um, that had come to a short term to Montana because at this point Salt Lake City was still kind of under the umbrella of San Diego. Um, and so he had come to a short term to Montana. So I had kind of seen him just as a member but I remember when when um, the leader had said like her had introduced this person to me and said, "Hey, do you know of so brother so and so?" I was like, "Who?" <laughs> and so then he said, "Oh, you know, he actually came to a short term to Montana and then sent me a few pictures, a couple pictures of him." And I was like, "Oh, okay, I think I remember him." But I mean, like, I didn't really like know him, know him, you know, but then we started talking, texting, um, like Skyping. Um, and then we actually met in person in Salt Lake City. Um, I traveled to Salt Lake City so he could meet like my family. And um, so, yeah. So, so it was an arranged marriage. It was, I'm sorry, are you asking, are you saying it was, it yeah. was or wasn't it? Like when they when they do that kind of stuff, do they call it like openly an arranged marriage or like do you consider that an arranged marriage for you? Um, I think I um let's see. I have heard cases of literally supposedly, you know, Zongil Ja has said, like, you are gonna marry this person. And that's like the first time they ever met, right? Um I consider that, I mean, very clearly arranged. Um, now, in my case, it was, hey, what do you think about this brother? But at that point, it was more just like, what do you think about the way he looks? Because it was just pictures that I had to go off of. It was, I wouldn't necessarily say it was arranged, but I would say that there was definitely pressure to get married. And as far as the date, you know, like I said, we had said, 
oh, we want to get married. And I think like January and they were like, oh no, just get married in November. I mean, why are you waiting? You don't, you want to do the gospel for father and mother, you know? And so, yeah, I, I, I wouldn't say it was arranged because at the end of the day, like he did propose to me, I did say yes, you know, but now that I know about high control groups and cults, it's like, was that really me saying yes? You know, because if I hadn't been in that environment, if I wasn't pressured, if I wasn't told this is the way to serve father and mother, to do the gospel, I don't think that I would have, if I didn't think the world was going to end very soon, I would not have, have gotten married in general, <laughs> you know, or even to that person. Um, yeah, your story is really interesting because from it's either like yes, it was arranged or no, and yours is very like kind of in the middle. They definitely yeah. influenced it, and I would I would consider from an outsider, I feel like that's an arranged. I feel like you were in an arranged marriage, but that's just from. Yeah, I don't no, know. No, and I like totally appreciate that perspective. I mean, because it, like, definitely, like I said, like it you know, it's just hard to know because you do have that cult identity and you're just being pressured in so many different ways. It's it's hard to say that it was truly my decision. I don't think it was truly my decision. I see um, something too is that you're, I feel like, and I, and I hear this in, to, in a lot of your guys' stories, knowing what was your own decision making and like, and kind of working through that. I bet that's such a weird feeling of, of going like, I made the decision to get married, but how much of me was that? And and so much of the decisions that you made all of you guys throughout all of those years, and this must be so much to unpack and so much to, to look at. I don't know. It's just interesting hearing it again. Yeah, no, for sure. And I, and I totally agree. Like it's, it is hard because, you know, one thing that I've learned as I've been educating myself and, and talking, you know, to therapists about too, is like, you know, there's a lot of guilt. There's a lot of shame. I think we tend to blame ourselves. Like, why did I get myself into this? Why did I say yes? When, they told me to come to a Bible study or whatever. And we kind of tend to beat ourselves up about it. But one of the things I've learned is you can't do that because you, the reality of the situation is like in that situation, you know, if I had been told, Hey, we're from a church, this is who we are. Um, we actually have a house church that we're inviting you to and where our mission is to to baptize as many people as we can this is our founder like if i had been told all those things up front i wouldn't have made the decision that i made to go to the bible study or to go to this random house right like i thought i was going to like these these people were students of the university of utah when i drove to that house if i had known that they were from san diego like <laughs> you know, not even students, right? I wouldn't have felt comfortable doing the things that I did. And so I do think that, like, I totally understand what you're saying, Lindsay, is that there's things that, yes, we agreed to or that we decided to go with. But wouldn't you agree, Tony? Like, a lot of it, I think we would, I think our answers and our actions would have been different if we would have known the whole picture. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. We wouldn't have even gotten baptized in the beginning. You're yeah, absolutely right. right. Pressure. Of, um, and I think Chad is the first one who, when he told me about his marriage, it really hit me. And like, I kind of feel this way with your story too. Like, if you think the world is going to end, you're like, why would you not get married? Sure. Yeah. I'll get married to this random person who we sure yeah. we're workers. I mean, there's that feeling of like, what well, there's, there's no consequence to it or it's not really yeah. that big. You know, the world is coming. Exactly. Making every decision with that thought in the back of your head for like 12 years is just so, I mean, oh, it's just so fascinating. Yeah, exactly. And like the reason you get married, I mean, and I'm sure Tony can agree to this is like, it's, it's, it's presented to you. I mean, you get married for the gospel. Like that's how marriage, I mean, and I know that your situation is a little bit different because you were already with somebody, but like, that is how marriage is looked at. Like you, if you're a gospel worker, the only reason you get married, it's not for love. It's not for making a family, you know, having kids with this person. Like that's not the end goal. The goal is, is you get married for the gospel so that you guys can be in these gospel worker roles of, you know, especially leading house churches or whatever it is that they, that they want you to do lead members. And, um, I mean, that's ultimately why you're getting married. So I really think that my marriage, it, it was more of like, almost like a business deal. Like, oh yeah, like it was just like, why not? I mean, you know, for the gospel, right? Like it wasn't like I was in love with this person and I don't think he was in love with me. I mean, love was something that was looked at as an idol. I mean, you, you shouldn't love somebody like that. You shouldn't love anybody, including your children, your spouse, your parents, more than father, mother, more than the church. And so marriage itself is just, it's such an interesting thing in the Wimscog because it's not like what somebody like Lindsay would think of a marriage, right? Like you, mar you get married to somebody because you want to spend the rest of your life with this person and you want to build a family with this person and you can see yourself being with this person, you know, until you age and you die eventually. Like that is not at all how marriage is presented in in the Wimscog. It's 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 very different. And so so I can totally see, yeah, it is in some ways it can be looked at as being arranged, depending on what your definition of the word is and what connotations you apply to that word. But but yeah, that was that was my whole marriage situation. And how long so then after you were married, were you sent to a house church to be a house church leader? So when I was sent to Montana, well, when I just, maybe not sent, but when I decided to move to Montana, there was, I was living with another couple. So there was a couple that was there and I was the third person and we were taking care of the house church. When I got married, um, my husband moved to Montana from San Diego. And then the couple that had been in that city in Montana they were moved to a different city in Montana. And then my husband and I took over that specific house church. And so, yes. Yeah, so like immediately after we got married, I mean, we didn't even have time to like get to know each other. Literally like immediately after we got married, it was like, okay, now you're going to be leading this house church. Um, which I think was also very problematic because I didn't have a lot of time to get to know this person that, you know, I was going to be, um, I mean, that I was married to, you know, be working so, so much with, because when you're the house church leader, so did you, was your experience the same where you felt like your role was to support whatever he needed 
and to support. Yeah, yeah, are. definitely. I mean, the roles of like what a man does and what a woman does in the in the house church, it's very um, structured, you know. And so, definitely, the one who's doing the, you know, the, that's giving the sermons, the one that's usually doing the Bible studies. Um, well. A lot of the members that we had initially were women. So I was doing, I was doing a good amount of Bible studies as well, but definitely like the one who's doing, you know, doing the sermons and doing all that type of stuff was my husband. And then I was doing a lot of like the traditionally feminine things, right? So like I was cooking in the kitchen, I was watching the kids, I was, um, doing a lot of the clean, well, you know, we'd clean together. I mean, in all, you know, honestly, I've heard marriages in the church of God where like the husband is very, very like, you need to like iron my clothes. Like you need to like, you know, dinner should be ready for me. Like when I'm at home, like I, there are men like that, like in general, not even just in the church of God, but like my husband, I can say was very like, he was not like that, <laughs> you know? So he was very much like independent too. Like he'd do his own washes and clothes and, you know, iron his own suits or whatever. So, but definitely when it came to like the church duties, like cooking and watching the kids, that was primarily what I was doing. And then also like, as far as like taking care of the accounting, um, that was me. I was responsible for, for that, like the tithes and the offerings and all that. And you can see how that opens up a door though, for the possibility of abuse, because like you were saying, there are men that go into a marriage where they're just like, now you're my wife, even right. though the traditional start to a marriage. Now it's like, okay, now you're my, now you're my wife. So you get to do all these things for me. It's yes, just it does. And, and I have heard of, you know, members who their husbands would control things like how much makeup they could wear and, you know, would get mad if they, looked too much or, you know, because I think they have that expectation, like, well, you shouldn't look too good because then somebody else is going to look at you a certain way or whatever. Right. I mean, I have heard those stories too. Um, and like I said, I was very fortunate because the person that I ended up with wasn't controlling in that manner. You know, he let me dress however I wanted, do my hair, however I wanted, you know, do however much makeup I wanted. Um, we were, when it came to the house duties, as far as cleaning, we did it together when it came to like laundry or cleaning the house church. And so um, even when I would go grocery shopping, like a lot of times he would come with me. So I was very fortunate when it came to like the person I ended up with, because like, is it Esperanza? I, I think is the name. Like, for example, her story is awful, right? I mean, the person she ended up with was awful to her. And so I do think that out of all the things that I experienced in the Wimscog, like my marriage was one of the things that like wasn't as bad as it has been for other former members. This just makes me think of it. I just finished watching the, the Boy Scouts documentary on Netflix. I don't know if you guys have seen that yet, but it reminds me of this where it's like the organization in itself is not like promoting this to happen. Like they're not like, oh, we love it when like child abuse happens, but it right. creates environment where it's just like it probably like the people who want to do it can get away with it and this is like a perfect 
scenario for it to happen. And it kind of reminds me of the arranged marriage situations. I think in like religions in general, like a lot of Christian religions, they do reinforce those stereotypical roles, right? Like this is what is considered masculine and this is what's considered feminine. And so people who who go into into it with that mindset, like like my religion is kind of backing me up in this. I mean, yes, I think it can become a breeding ground for very abusive relationships. And, and so I totally agree. Yeah. 100%. You mentioned that you were the one that took care of the finances in the house church. That was one of your duties. So can you explain what that was like? And, you know, um, like kind of what that entailed and if you kind of saw anything that was bothersome while you were doing that? Um, yeah, sure. So, um, so pretty much like when it came to the, uh, accounting or like the finances, um, so as you know, the, the church of God, they, uh, have the tithe and the offering that they do for certain services or the Sabbath or whatever. And so that was something that like, I was in charge of counting, and um, there was a software system that they used um, and we would have to input and then they had, we have certain books that we received from the church where we would have to document, um, you know, how, the names of the people that were tithing and how much they were tithing, um, as well as document how much offering we were getting and things like this. And so, um, and then also when it came to like, Sabbath day meals, or that's one thing that I do want to like mention too. And I was going to get into, get into this a little bit later, but like, as far as the finances of everything, you know, like the house church finances, as far as like, we have to buy this or we have to buy that. I mean, that was definitely something that like my husband and I, we paid for the rent, we paid for like anything that had to, like we had to buy. Um, now there was like donations that we would collect from the members if they got to a certain level where they wanted to be involved, like they would give a donation, um, maybe like $20 a month or something like that. And then we would use that sometimes for like meals on the Sabbath, or sometimes we would use that for like cleaning supplies. But a lot of times that wasn't enough. And so when it wasn't enough, I mean, it was all coming out of our own pocket. Did you guys have your personal names on the leases and like Excel bills and all that or is that underneath the Wimscog's name? Um that was underneath our names. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. The house church was, yeah, it was, I mean, definitely under under our names. And um yeah. Yeah. Um and so I mean and like as far as like noticing like things that were like weird. I mean, at the time I, I really like still believe this was the truth. And so I did believe at the time that like, we should give our everything to this church, like, you know, like our souls and our finances and everything, like it belongs to God. Right. I mean, that's kind of instilled in you, like nothing you have is your own. It all belongs to father and mother. And if you have something, it's because of their grace. Right. So Like, I didn't feel bad at the time for, like, spending so much money on the church or on the members, you know. I mean, it was something that I was doing um, because I thought that that was the way that I could be blessed and that was the way that I could repay father-mother's sacrifice. And so, um, I mean, 
I do. I, I will say that like the software system, I mean, there were things on there that like I would see that were, you know, there were places like where, you know, it would ask for things like how much interest did you make off of a vehicle or how much did you like things like that. And like, I, I mean, that wasn't something that was asked of me, but that was definitely, th those were categories where you could enter things um, on the system. And so I think there are members who are more involved where they have to enter those financial details about like their own belongings. And I think that like that kind of was a little bit weird to me when I saw things like that, like, well, that's a lot of like personal information that they're wanting, you know? Um, but again, like I was very much like still very involved. I thought this was the truth. And so whenever there were things that I would notice um, here and there, I would kind of just like file them in the back of my head, like, well, there must be a reason, you know, like, I just don't understand because God's thoughts aren't my thoughts, you know, and whatnot. So, um, but it was just a very detailed software system. It was so detailed. Um, I mean, there was categories for every little thing. And so um, that we would have to input this information into. Do you remember the name of the software? Um, no, I just know that it was specific to the Church of God. It was, it like was something, from, it was it was like something from, that they had made. Like, it's something specific to the church. Like, it's not something right. that you can, like, just, like, get. Like, it's something that they, I think, created. And it goes know? from, like, directly from you to Korea. And it mm -hmm. has to be inputted by a certain time. And there's, like, little code numbers that you have to put in. And that's where mm -hmm. you can the attendance, right? And you have to put in yep. if they're late yep. and all those things. And I think that you had mentioned that you listened to Michelle's court case, right? And they were like, oh, we don't know where the documents are. We don't have yeah. them. We and that's what I wanted documents. To, <laughs> I and that's one of the things that I have on my notes that I definitely wanted to go over. I just thought it was so ridiculous how um you know and this is after the fact and you know I allowed myself to look online but you know one of the things I think it's John Power his interview and he said you know the the guy asks him like hey um what like uh, does the money go to Korea? Like what happens to the money that the members give in the United States? And he's like, oh, I don't know. Like I'm not in charge of like the finance. And it's like, like you definitely know, <laughs> like, like when we give tithe and offering, like when we give the study, like we tell people, like we were told to tell people that your tithe, which is the green envelope and then the brown envelope, which is another type of offering that goes to Korea. And I was taught that the blue offering stays in, you know, in the church. That's what I was taught. And so, I mean, I was told that it goes to Korea and it definitely goes to Korea. I mean, there's no doubt about it because the reality of the situation is like Michelle has mentioned is that everything that all the on there, and it's just ridiculous to me because like on the um, tax forms, they say like that they use the money for things like meals or short terms or um, orchestra or choir or and it's like no we pay the members pay out of pocket for everything like all everything. of that we paid for all yeah that. yeah and there's always offering there was always like it was always asked of the members when there was going to be a construction project we're going to get new tile we're going to get 
new roofing or whatever. It's all you're, you always ask the members. We're gonna get wine for the Passover, another offering. Everything is out of pocket, right? One thing that really shocked me too is when we were getting ready to look into office churches, uh, like an office suite, right? So we were told to start, my husband and I were told to start looking at office spaces. And we thought, like, I mean, well, I can't say for him, but I thought, like, and this is, I'm already, I've already been a member for like nine years, nine, eight years, right? So I thought that, okay, like once we got an office space, the church would take care of it. Cause it makes sense to me, like, okay, like obviously we're in a house church, we're sleeping here, we're living here. So we have to pay for it. That made, that made sense to me. But my understanding was, it was just logical to me, like once we get an office space for the church and like we have our own apartment where we're sleeping in and living in, the church is going to take care of of the office space. But that wasn't the case because we were told that we had to ask the members how much they were willing to contribute to the rent of the office space. So we had to ask each family that was active in the church, you know, hey, how much is your family willing to contribute to the rent of this office space? So even the rent of like a retail space is the members. So what, like, where is all the money going? Like where? all the time. And, the and I have a question. <laughs> were, you, were you expected to live in the office space? Uh, we didn't get to that point yet. Okay. Um, but I don't think that, like, I think that probably not. I think we were expected to just get like a place that was close to, to the right. office space. Um, also, you have to pay your rent and pay the rent for the office space. Too. Yeah, a portion of yeah, exactly. So and I, you know, what are you going to have this job because you have to preach and you have to do the fees? Yeah, and so that was definitely one of those things where I was like, I just filed it in the back of my mind. I found that really weird, and even the members were very confused because a lot of them had thought like, well, okay, our tithes and offerings that we're paying are going to go towards like this office space now but to be told that they had to contribute like if they were willing to contribute how much could they contribute to this office space I think that really took a lot of them by surprise um and so that that's why it's so ridiculous to me that with the court case when they were asked to produce financial documents that all they produced after kicking the can down the road for however long they did was this like one single sheet of paper and that is just such BS because how detailed was that? Like Tony, that software system that we had to use, it was so detailed. The books that we had to write in, so detailed. Like if you made week a mistake. By week, yes. Yeah. I mean, every little thing. And they they looked at it all the time. Yeah. That's why they're just lying. They are flat out lying. Like they're lying. And like, they, and that's just it it just pisses me off because it's like. And it's a lot of money. Where is that money going? Because it's not getting taxed. Right. Because right. And it's not saying it's not staying in the United States. Like no. it's not like it's not because it that system, not. it's Korean based. That software system, it's Korean based. And it has all the churches all around the world that we have to input the, the information in. They yeah, have so very you have to take me and then take it to the bank on Sunday or on Monday. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah, me too. And you'd have to. Yeah. Would you treat it like so precious? Like I'm taking yeah. the bank. Yeah. yeah. So you were in for a long time and you went from, you know, you went to different locations. And over that time, did do you personally feel like 
you saw the doctrine changing or being being um or being presented in different ways yes yes i i definitely did and this is actually one of the things that eventually led me to start questioning things a little bit more allowing myself to question things a little bit more um so one example that i think you can relate to tony is the thanksgiving thing <laughs> so definitely in the in the earlier years we were told that thanksgiving was not allowed you were not allowed to go spend thanksgiving with your family and because it was not a church of god holiday or feast and i did i i know that i and then also some of the other members we like some of the other things like christmas or like say valentine's day or halloween i mean those obviously have pagan origins and it was easy to see that in history right but thanksgiving was one of those things where like it wasn't as clear to me and to some of the other members um but because they said that we couldn't do it we just didn't do it and then one year all of a sudden they're like yeah go spend thanksgiving with your family it's totally fine and I was so confused, but I had to tell the other members that I was taking care of that it was okay. And they were confused. And some of them were frankly pissed off because the year before they had told their families that they couldn't do it. And now all of a sudden they can. So they look like idiots. <laughs> and so they were mad at us because we were the, the leaders, right? But we didn't know why either. And that was something that was real that was something that I struggled with was like being in that in-between role because it's like the members you're taking care of that you're supposed to pass along information to, they're mad, right? Because things are changing. So they're mad at you and they want to know why things are changing. But you can't question your leaders about it because if you question, then you have lack of faith. So you're just kind of stuck in this in-between role of like just getting pressure from both sides and you don't really know what to do or where to go to. Did they ever give you an explanation to it that made you like that settled it for you or like did you just have to tuck that away and go like I don't really know I'm confused and that's it. Um, so I think that like I know somebody had mentioned one time like um, I think it was like Abraham Lincoln or somebody that had made it a like an official holiday in the United States and it was kind of like you know he had said something along the lines of like this is a day for us to like give thanks to God or something like that, I think. And so they were like, well, it's man-made and they're making it about God and it's not actually about God. I'd heard that. And then I'd also heard like, it was kind of like a replacement for like the feast of in gathering, you know, or like the feast of like harvest, like, those are real feasts in the Bible. And this is kind of like the fake version of that. So I was kind of given like vague answers like that, but I don't think I ever was really given an answer where I, I was completely satisfied as to, okay, this totally makes sense. Um, but there were a lot of things like that about the church of God. I mean, there was a lot of things over the years where I would have a question or things that it makes sense, but I was so heavily indoctrinated at that point that like, my fallback was always, well, there must be a reason I don't understand. It's because I'm a sinner or, you know, well, God's thoughts aren't my thoughts, you know. And so even though I didn't understand, like I was I would just make myself be OK with not understanding. Like it was my problem that I didn't understand. Right. Not 
not the fact that they couldn't explain it. As a family member on the outside, that Thanksgiving thing was probably the first time that our whole family was like, what the freak is going on? Because Tony was so, and Tony's and Tony's explanation was I misunderstood it. And I was like, no, you did not. They are gaslighting you. And that's when I was like, something yes. is going on in that place. And I don't like it one little bit. Yes. And then there was also other things too. Like, so for example, um, you know, Bible studies. So we were definitely like, when I first studied about Melchizedek, I was told that Christ on home came from Buddhist parents. I was definitely told that. For sure, I used to teach it that way when I taught Melchizedek. Now apparently they're claiming they never taught that, which is not true. <laughs> I was also told that mother would never die. Um, I, I was taught that in um, like Revelation, there's a verse where it says, you know, a voice came from the throne and said it is done. And then the throne is Jerusalem, which is mother, right? So mother will let us know when it's the end. And we're gonna ascend to heaven alive with mother, which means she's never gonna die. We're never going to die. We're all going to ascend to together. So was definitely taught that. Apparently now I've heard they're saying that they never taught that. Um, I remember specifically there was actually a prophecy I was taught about like the unclean and the clean animals. And I had notes about it. I had written notes because we always took notes on the Bible studies. And I remember my leader from Salt Lake City was like, hey, um, don't teach that anymore you know, and I remember I was a little bit confused, like, why not, you know, and he said, well, apparently, like, it's not church, of, like, it's not legitimate church of God Bible study, so, like, we shouldn't teach it, and I was very confused, because I, up until that point, I thought, well, wherever, whatever we've been taught, like, it's church of God, like, why are, like, now we being, being told that we can't teach certain things, um, and then there were certain things, like, you know, I remember, I got a new phone and the default of, of like the text message ringtone was a whistle and I didn't even think to change it. You know, I just got a new phone and I remember it went off and I got rebuked because apparently Christ Anson Hong had said like whistling is of the devil, like it's not okay. Um, and I had to change my ringtone. And then a few years later, there was an announcement that was made like, you might have heard that he said that whistling is not okay, but just so you know, it's it's fine. And our leader whistled in front of everyone, like a crowd of like 20, 30 people. And we were all like, because we had been so scared up until that point, we thought whistling was like of the devil, right? Because that's what they had told us. And he actually whistled and said, yeah, it's fine. Like you might've been taught that, but that's not true. And so it was things like this where, like we had been told something, you know, at one point, and then now all of a sudden we're being told like, oh yeah, Church of God never said that, or this isn't true. And, you know, I started also when I was a house church leader, I started seeing more of like when certain DVDs would get recalled, right? So like a lot of times they'd be like, hey, um, this DVD and this DVD, you need to destroy it. And so we would have to take that DVD, cut it into four pieces, send them a picture that had been destroyed. Um, and I thought that was interesting too, like- Sherry, can you, explain, can you explain what you mean by the DVDs? Like when you say that to me, I, I know what you're talking about, but can you explain it a little? It's not like you yeah. like Buster, you rented a DVD from Box. Oh yeah, I'm so sorry. So yeah, so they would have, you know, 
Church of God DVDs, different DVDs that they had, Father's Sacrifice, or talking about Mother's Sacrifice, or talking about a you know, they're propaganda videos, essentially. Right. It's like a library, right? And, and ours was like it a closed door, a locked door. You, nobody's really allowed to have access to it. Except yeah. For people. Yeah. So they would have different movies that were from the church that the church produced. And so these videos might have been plays or of father mother's life. They might have been plays of what happened in heaven or a certain propaganda video about the gospel work in Nepal or India or whatever. Um, they had propaganda videos about the trips to Korea. So there was different types of videos like that. But every once in a while, we'd get mess a message from our leadership that, okay, this title of the DVD or the video or this title, um, you need to destroy that video. So you need to take that DVD cut it into four pieces, send us a picture that it's been done. And then, um, and then, yeah. And then later, like another version of it would come out. Um, and I noticed there was one particular thing that really bothered me. And this was towards the end of my membership in the church. But one of the videos that we had watched was about um, what would happen um, in heaven at the coronation ceremony, when we would all be awarded our stars and all of that. And I remember that video because I had watched it like a dozen times in Salt Lake City when I was a new member. And there was a scene that was about how the world was going to end. What were the events that were going to lead to the end of the world? And one of the things that this original video had mentioned was that there was going to be a comet that was going to hit the earth and that that, that this event would happen before the world would end. Now, there was a updated version that came out of that same video not too long ago, probably within the last couple of years. And I watched that video and that, that whole scene had been taken out about this comet hitting the earth. And that really bothered me. Like, why would you take that out? Why would you take that out are you is it because you like you were just making it up <laughs> and saying it was prophecy at the time and now you're realizing it's probably not going to happen like I mean if this is the truth that prophecy shouldn't change over time doctrine shouldn't change over time you know and, and how scary for you because I'm sure that when you first saw it with the comment you're like actively visualizing that that's what's going to happen. I mean, that must be a horrible, terrifying experience. And then for them to just like take it out without mentioning it. And then you're just like, wait, so did I just like not need to panic about that? I can't. Yeah. Like, it's yeah. just like, what the hell? Like, you know, I mean, like you guys use that to scare me for however many years. And I'm thinking this is prophecy. This is truth with a capital T and now you're just going to take it out and like no big deal right and obviously the members that just got baptized they're not going to know right. but somebody like me that's been in as long as i've been in and has vivid recollection of what that video used to be like like it bothered me along with all the other things that i mentioned you know it, it did it was that cognitive dissonance you know like it really did bother me but like I would just file it at the back of my head, like, well, I mean, there must be a reason, right? Mm 
But those things kept happening and happening and happening. And I keep noticing these changes and the sketchiness is what I would call it. And it just like, I do think that that was part of the reason that was part of what led to me leaving. It wasn't every, it wasn't the only reason, but it was definitely part of it because it just kept adding up. I have a question about Salt Lake City. Can I ask you that? Yeah. What what were the members like in Salt Lake City? What kind of members are there? Um, you know, the members were really, really great. Um, I honestly, some of my best memories of like being in the church are in Salt Lake City, especially when we were in office church. Um, I was a youth member at the time and I was really close to a lot of the sisters there. Um, and the members were, were, yeah, I mean, that was, like I said, it was, it was really, it was a really good time. Um, I do have some kind of concerns um, about, so this kind of goes, so I recently watched Sound of Freedom. If you have not seen Sound of Freedom, I highly recommend watching it. It's a really, really good movie. Um, And it talks about, you know, child um, sex trafficking and things that we need to talk more about. But um, one thing that I do want to mention is children in general. Um, I always noticed, like, the way that the children were treated was it really bothered me. I know that you've talked about this too, Tony. Like there just wasn't a lot of like emphasis placed on the children. Like they were seen more as just like getting in the way, right? And I do know that there, I mean, I wouldn't like say that, I wouldn't go as far as to say is like, they're like abusing children, like physically, but like definitely there was, I know there was a particular member who had a daughter, like a young daughter that told her mom that she had been like hit on her, like maybe like had her like ear tugged or had her hair pulled or something like that. And the mother freaked out, like got really upset with the leader's wife. And, um, I remember the leader's wife that day was like bawling because because this member had gotten upset with her because her child had told her that that's how she had been with her child during service to try to get her to behave. Um, So I do know that there was like I didn't physically witness it happening, but I do I did physically witness this person's wife getting upset and crying because this member had um, gotten upset with her because her child was being treated a certain way. Um, they were very strict with the children. Um, one thing that I will mention um, that I think is very problematic, and this is public information. So my mom recently left the church as well but she was a member of Salt Lake City for quite some time. And there is a member that currently is attending that church. And that person is actually a known registered sex offender. 
Um, this person is, has been charged with um, second degree sex exploitation of a minor. Um, this person is a member. I don't think the congregants are aware that this person has been charged with something like this. And last I had heard, like I said, this person has is, is attending services just like as a member. I know there was a period of time where he wasn't allowed to come to Zion, but this member now is, is going to Zion, like on the Sabbath and everything. And so I think that is very problematic because if you take your children to a church and you entrust your children to the care of a church in the kids room or whatever, and there's somebody that um, has exploited minors and is just roaming free in the church, don't you think that you should be made aware of that? And I don't really know what the laws are, and I'm sure they're different state by state, but what is the law about um, sex offenders like having to announce themselves in the in a church situation? I, I have no idea what the laws are. Because I know like uh, if you move into a neighborhood in some states, you have to like go door to door and like tell people. Well, you can't live close to a school, but in the Church of God specifically, yeah, Everybody I don't know to all the children. Like, yeah, it's very room. Yeah, kids are all over. You know, the kids are kind of like free access because it's like a big family. Everybody's trusting. Yeah, and I just think that, like, you know, and I don't know what the laws are, you know, um, but I do think that, um, that is something that they definitely know. There's no way that they don't know. Um, I mean, if I know and I'm just like a normal member, like there's no way that they don't know these things. Um, and it's just the fact that I, I just think like, like Tony said, like the kids are just running around and you obviously would think that, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know what the laws are, but I just know that if I was going to a church and if you knew that this there's this member i mean i think i would at least like to know so yeah. that i can be protected and not looked you know yeah i mean i just think that that's i i don't know what the law is i don't know but i do know that i think there's some responsibility like i that's kind of what i feel and that's just my personal opinion i do too i think so too it's it's kind of what we were talking about earlier with the relationships like it it's a breeding ground for abuse in an already kind of abusive relationship. So like the church in general is not a very healthy organism. And so now you add somebody who is a sex predator, like in that pool of like relationships that are already are not healthy. So it's just like, it's a like an easy access. It's like another breeding ground. It's not good. And you know, none of the people who work with the children go through a background check. None of them have any kind of, you know, childhood education or anything. They're just brothers and sisters who want to get blessings. Yeah. So who's to say who those people really are, you know, or what their intentions would be. Right. That's very true. I mean, it's, they don't, um, they don't do any sort of, at least when I was there, there was no sort of like, do you have knowledge of how children develop or what their needs are or what's the best way to educate them. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, a lot of times, I mean, they're just, I mean, at least from what I 
witnessed. I mean, they're just stuck in a room, you know, all, all Sabbath day long. And it just, I mean, and they definitely did participate in fasting. That's another thing that now they're like, when they go on public television and, you know, they have the interview with John Powers or whatever, he said that the children are not told to fast and that we announced that, you know, you can bring food, which is complete, like, not what I, not what I experienced, you know, in the 12 and a half years that I was there, the children were expected to fast. And I would listen to crying children, crying babies, you know, for those days. And, you know, I mean, they, I mean, we would put like tinfoil around the water dispenser. So people, would, you know, accidentally break the fast so oh, but they I can just, bring snacks get out of here yeah yeah so i mean it's just there's a lot of stuff that any member will tell you is something that you know was done in the church but of course they don't want to they don't want to admit it on national television so. did you guys both witness the children um in the children's room, would they show those horrible videos, the propaganda videos? Do the kids also see those? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And a lot of times, like on the Sabbath day, you know, after the service, they would have a video played like in the, in the sanctuary. Um, and so all the kids would watch those together with the adults. And a lot of times they had scary scenes in the sermons themselves, you know, general pastor sermons where like if the topic was hell or you know, if the topic was something about the end of the world, I mean, while he's talking about these things or reading these verses, they're showing the background pictures of people burning in hell and all these disasters taking place and scenes from, you know, different, um, you know, horror, like not horror movies, but just, I mean, they would just show scenes of people suffering and, and dying and being in agony, um, even during the sermon sometimes. And so, Definitely children were, I mean, fear was used quite a bit on the children um, to try to get them to, to behave or to act a certain way that was in accordance with what the Church of God deemed as appropriate behavior for children. Um, so, you know, and, and now again, like now that I'm out, I just see how problematic that is. I mean, that is not a healthy way to, I mean, it's not healthy for us adults let alone children, you know, to be exposed to that type of material, in my opinion. A lot of member, a lot of former members have expressed that they have felt a little bit of racism within the organization. What is that something that you feel like you experienced? So I definitely agree with how Raymond explained about this. So how Raymond explained about it, it's not necessarily overt racism where somebody's going to tell you to your face, we don't like, say, Black people, you know, um, or people of color. It's not like that, but it's, it's more hidden. And I definitely experienced, and lots of members experienced this, that there's definitely a favoritism when it comes to white, the, you know, people that are white um as far as whenever there was any sort of an event 
like a blood drive or a cleanup, they would always, at least in Salt Lake City, have all the people who are white be up front holding the banner, smiling, right? Um, whenever they met with an authority figure like, say, the governor or, you know, somebody that was high up there, they would always have the white members go and meet that person. And so um, I know that my mom experienced quite a bit of, she said sometimes they would be holding like the banner up front for a blood drive and the leader's wife would come and yank her arm and take her all the way to the back because she's not maybe the best representative for the church of God. I'm not really sure, but it was very clear that, you know, she had to stand in the back. She had to be hidden. Whereas some of the other members that maybe fit their standard would be up front and would be praised and, and definitely, um, like Raymond mentioned, I think if you were not white, like, you know, say you were black or, or Mexican or, you know, um, my family's from Pakistan, um, you would have to, you know, work a little bit harder to, to say get a title or advance. Um, my mom did experience, um, I will mention two things. So as far as we know, Ron Ramos in his interview mentioned that they were, that he was taught as well as Diane that black people are cursed. I was never taught that, but I do know that when we watched bits and pieces of Ron's interview in the church, because they, they took bits and pieces of his interview and made a propaganda video out of it and showed it to us that when he said that, their response was then, well, um, this isn't true, he's lying. And then they showed how, you know, the Church of God has churches in Africa and that he's pretty much just lying and that there are members with titles who are black. So I just thought, oh yeah, like these members are just lying. Well, my mom, when I got married, had asked the, in Salt Lake City, had asked the leader's wife, if one of the sisters who is black could do my makeup for my wedding. And the response that she got was, no, you don't want her doing her makeup because she's African-American, you can't trust her. So my mom was just completely shocked when she heard that, you know. Um, and then somebody that I am very close to and who I believe is a very reliable source of information said that in San Diego, he had actually been taught the Bible study, this, the six day creation Bible study and had been taught that, that black people are cursed by leadership. So this person still goes to the church of God and I, and I did have this conversation with this person, like, don't you see, isn't that problematic that they're, they're demonizing Ron and making him out to be a liar when you're admitting to me right now that you had that same Bible study in San Diego. So Ron's telling the truth. So don't you think that's problematic? But he doesn't find it problematic. You know, he tried to just say like, well, food at the proper time or whatever, right? 
and he still goes to the, to the church of God. But I just found that like, oh my gosh, if they're lying about the black people thing, they're probably lying about abortions. They're probably lying about some of the other things that Ron exposed him about. And then lo and behold, when Raymond had his interview, he said that the abortion thing was legit. So, you know, I, I do think that that is something that used to be taught. Um, but I think my theory is, is that it just stopped being taught like some of the other things um, because the church expanded. And of course now there are, you know, members from all over the world, so they can't teach that anymore. Um, did you learn that in your, did you learn that study about, isn't it ham? So, so a lot of our leaders came from LA and like the, the, you know, over there and, mm -hmm. um, like San Diego and LA. And I think that that study was given over on that area because a lot of those members knew the study, but we were never actually taught the study, but like sometimes the members would like tell us about the study. Yeah. And I, and I don't know like too much information about this and I haven't looked into this but I know that like the Seventh-day Adventist, I think maybe like one of the members had mentioned this, that the, that's a Seventh-day Adventist teaching. And so right. obviously if right. Sung Hong learned it from say Ellen G. White, it would make sense right. that it's something that's that was at one point perhaps taught by the Church of God. Um, but I definitely did, did, I mean, we knew right away that there was favoritism when it came to obviously Koreans, right? Koreans are like, almost like idolized, you know, they're like the chosen. I was gonna um, say they don't really like Americans. Like they would always complain about how lazy we were and like, how fat we were. They didn't really like us. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, 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 yeah, I definitely as somebody like that's not, um, you know, white, like I definitely noticed that I personally like had to just work a little bit harder to get where I wanted to get versus others who maybe looked a certain way that, you know, uh, but again, I absolutely agree with Raymond's description of it. It's not like over like 1800s, you know, like they don't have signs like, you know, colored versus white or anything like that. But, um, but it is there, you know, it, it is there. And, and like I mentioned, apparently it was a part of their doctrine at some point, which would make sense why we see bits and pieces of it, you know, during our membership. Right. And then we look back and we're like, damn, what the hell was that about? You know, like, like you look back and then you realize so many things and you think, why didn't I see it in that moment? Ugh so wild yeah and I just think it's like again it's just when it's ingrained in your head that you're a sinner that you mm -hmm. can't even trust your own thoughts right that father and mother know what's best you Isn't know a lot so of times scary? that's so yeah, scary a lot of times the way that the leadership would act was in my opinion very ungodly you know I mean there were times where you know, this is one thing that I want to mention. I mean, I was asked, you know, there's one particular experience I can think of where the the wife of the 
leader called me and told me on the phone that when a certain member got into the car, I was to tell that member that I had talked to her husband and her husband had said that she shouldn't act a certain way. But she told me to lie about it because I had, I didn't talk to her husband about anything. And so I remember I got off the phone and I just was very, very troubled because I knew lying was wrong, but now my leader is telling me to lie. And so I need to be obedient. Right. And so I struggled with that so much. It's because like, I know I'm not supposed to lie, but I know I'm supposed to be obedient. Like, how do I make that make sense in my mind? Right. And I remember when she got into the car, I was getting ready to tell her that, oh, you know, so-and-so said this, but I couldn't do it. Like that lie would not come out of my mouth. And that bothered me for a while, but then I would just tell myself, well, men are sinners. Maybe my leader is a sinner. So she's telling me to lie, but father and mother know the truth. Father and mother will judge in the end. You know, it was always, like, I always fell back on that. Even though I saw a lot of problems with leadership and the way that they would act and the things that they would say. Like, for example, how the same leader told my mom that, you know, you can't trust somebody because they're African-American, you know, like, obviously when you hear that, that's not okay. But then what do you tell yourself when you're, when you're in, you're just like, well, they'll be judged on the last day. Father, mother are seeing everything, you know, and you always would fall back on that. Right. That, I don't know. It's just, it's a trap. It's just that trap. Yeah. yeah, it is a trap. Sharon, um, can we end on this question and then we'll start back up with the second part of your interview next time? Yes. Uh, is this a good one to ask? And if not, we can end on something else. But what are your feelings now in your healing journey? Um, how do you feel towards like mother as a person and the whole leadership in South Korea? Oh, that, that, that was a good one. Um, so... I have, and we can, we'll talk more about my healing journey, I think next time, but I do want to say that something that's been very, very helpful in my healing journey is just educating myself about high control groups, educating myself about how cults work, um, watching documentaries. And one thing that I've learned is with high control groups, you, you have to have usually a, a narcissistic leader that can do no wrong. And so what are my thoughts about the person who claims to be the mother of the church of God is very much that she's not God and that um, obviously the money's going somewhere. I don't know where it's going. Um, I think that I have my own theories about, you know, the history of the church and how it started and why it did. But when I, you know, even getting into, I, I did get in touch with Kelsey and she, she actually speaks Korean. So she's able to see a lot more than I am, but there are blogs out there for those of you that are interested in looking even further into this. And there are blogs out there. There is a blog that's actually by, a pastor in Korea who used to be a part of the General Assembly that left. And I think that you can see through his blog that 
there is a lot of speculation that there is the, the leadership at the very top, including, you know, obviously the one who claims to be mother is very corrupt. And um, that there's just a lot of, um, yeah, I, I think they, I, I, my opinion is, is that she knows very well what she's doing and that, and it just makes me sick to know that you can, another characteristic of, of a cult is you have to be able to exploit your members, whether that be financially, sexually, physically. In the Church of God, to my knowledge, there hasn't been any sexual exploitation of the members, but definitely physical labor, um, financial for sure, emotional for sure. So for me to, when I think about this person who claims to be mother, she knows it's an act. She knows she's not God. She knows the members are being exploited. She knows members are being exploited terribly in, in some, some of these third world countries like Nepal and India. And they're literally just giving every, their whole entire being to this lie and she's okay with it. I can't have any respect, even an ounce of respect for somebody like that. I mean, to me, that person is a narcissist and a, psych a psychopath. You know, I mean, that's really the only way that I can describe it. And so, I mean, I guess that's kind of my opinion of her in a nutshell. But um, uh, I would just say, you know, like, educate yourself on cults, educate yourself on high control groups, um, the characteristics, the psychological definition of a, of, a, of a cult, the characteristics of a cult, it's very clear, you know, and and this organization meets all the criteria. The leader, the leader meets all the criteria as well. So, um, yeah, I hope that answers your question. Everybody listening, we know that we missed like the end half of Sharon's story, so she's gonna come back on, um, and when we have a little bit more time, and she's gonna finish the rest of her story of like how she finally left and all of the details of the end of her story. So don't worry, we're gonna finish where we left off. Boom, baby. So Tony's like over there smoking her bong. You're fine. <laughs> I don't even notice it, Tony. I'm just like, I just like tone it up. Um, okay, now you're on mute. 